0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you modernist breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com podcast. Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. The proof is in the pudding. I've never quite understood the origins of that proverb, which supposedly dates back to the 14th century, but is widely attributed to Cervantes The History of Don Quixote. This may be a stretch. But what's testament is our belief in perceivable evidence, such that demonstrates a series of identifiable truths. Well, Don Quixote thought large windmills were standing giants, but I guess it all depends on how you look at it. Here, we observe a microscopic, single-celled organism from the fungi kingdom and its full effect on bread. Yeast. How can something so small make such a big impact? When it comes to bread, the proof really is in the proofing.
2: We used fresh yeast, the kind that's like big gray blocks. And when I started teaching classes, a lot of the students would sort of lament that they could not find that kind of yeast for sale for a home baker and would often wish they could because that was what their grandmother used and Mm. they thought they would get better results with it. And at some point, the supplier we had became unreliable and the yeast we started getting was having some issues. And we actually switched all of our recipes over to a dry kind of yeast. It was an instant yeast. And I have to say, I did not notice a single change when we did that. So um, my personal view is that Either one works great, and there's nothing better about fresh yeast versus the dry kind of yeast. Uh, So that's, yeah, I know some people have strong opinions on that, but Mm -hmm. in my experience, we did not see a difference at all.
1: That was Emily Bueller, author of Bread Science, The Chemistry and Craft of Making Bread. She's got a PhD in chemistry, but is still unable to discern the difference between commercial and fresh yeast. So what makes you think you can? More importantly, what is yeast anyway? Nathan Mirvold, founder of The Cooking Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread, can profess he's seen yeast and has a belly button.
3: So uh, yeast is an amazing, uh, amazing little creatures. They are related to fungus. You could say they're sort of like mushrooms, but they're different enough. It's they're really their own thing, which is yeast. And yeast are funny because they have two different systems of reproduction. Yeast can uh, reproduce sexually. Uh, of course, flowering plants reproduce sexually. That's what the point of a flower. They can also uh, reproduce asexually. And they reproduce asexually by budding. Now, the way that works is a little bud starts growing on one part of the the yeast cell, and it grows and grows and grows until it becomes pops off as its own yeast cell. And that leaves a, something called a budding scar, which by God looks just like a belly button. So yeast has belly buttons, and they're outies. And we uh, people have known this for a long time, but it, we, it was new to us when we first started looking at yeast under the electron microscope, and oh my God! there's all these budding scars on our yeast. And you can tell some of them are relatively new mothers and they only have one, and some of them have lots of of, uh, budding scars.
4: So is yeast mother or child? Or both? A bearer of bread's beginnings or something bigger? Well, leavening can include the history of some non-yeasted breads, too but Eastern breads happen to be the foundational core of what modernist bread is all about. Sorry, Irish Soda Bread. It's not elitist, rather it's quite egalitarian to think that anyone, anywhere, can have a well-baked bread, one with crust and crumb, and naturally raised through the alchemy of fermentation. William Rubel, author of Bread, A Global History, has studied bread's ancestry and its eminence.
5: The breads for the court of Versailles and the breads for high-status tables in France were yeasted breads, as far as I can tell. They had a huge yeasted tradition. There's a wonderful French cookbook called La Maison Roustique. Its first edition was like 1550. It went through many, many editions, and obviously the original authors died. It was taken over um, by a man named Liger in the 18th century. And and he has a lovely recipe for a bread, I think it's called pain cousin, and he says if you want to make a really special bread for a friend in your country house, and of course it's a lightly enriched yeasted bread, has some milk in it. So... We modern people, this includes the French, have turned our back and effaced what actually was a very, very strong yeast-enriched, and I emphasize this enriched, yeast bread tradition in French. Enriched is any time you add some fat to it. So right now, what Anglophone bread culture, and I think it's important to include our friends in Britain and Australia and Canada and and not be entirely American about it. But what we all are on the same project right now are these unenriched um, breads, mostly with sourdough starter. But it's not um, the history of bread.
4: Jim Chevalier, a.k.a. Che Jim, has written and published a series of books about 18th-century French breads, tracking their ascent and how they came to take shape therewith.
6: Starting in the 17th century, there was this development where, for centuries, French bread had been made with sourdough, and then supposedly it was Marie de' Medici who brought the idea from Spain of using yeast in good breads. Uh, Whatever the case, bakers in about the middle of the 17th century began to use yeast for aristocratic best breads. And... Along the way, they also began to vary the forms of breads. Now, breads had pretty much universally been ball-shaped, and if they were very big, then they were like a collapsed ball, the kind of hemisphere you see in some big niche. But now, uh, the shapes began to become more varied, plus more breads were made with yeast, and one theory, this is from Le Glandosi, who's a great 18th century food historian. His idea was that because people were using yeast, um, you needed more of a crust. You needed the bread the crust of the bread to be closer to each side uh, to uh, I guess have, have more solidity because of the way yeast um, expands the crumb, which becomes softer.
1: The history of bread, like that of the world, was first flat, but once fermentation got a rise out of yeasted bread, even the bourgeoisie could enjoy it. Peter Reinhardt wrote a guide to baking artisanal bread at home, utilizing the slow-rise method, giving deeper meaning to the phrase, the best things come to those that wait.
7: Yeah, Brother Juniper's bread book, Slow Rise as Method and Metaphor, and it was uh, a couple of years later, it took about 10 years before I wrote that book uh, because I was just cooking for, you know, if, in-house for the, for the seminarians. And, uh, but a number of years later, uh, my wife, who was also a cook it, within the same Christian community that I was in, um, she and I opened a little restaurant cafe and by then I had started making more breads as for fun and entering them into harvest fairs and county fairs and winning awards. And I thought, you know, we're going to do this cafe, we might as well make our own bread. And that's when it all started to happen and all these little seeds that have been planted along the way came together. And after that, I started to get this idea about, you know, what is it about why is some bread better than others? And the core idea, the metaphor was that slow-rising bread just always seems to be better than fast-rising bread. And that became the germ of this first book. And I think I've been writing that same insight for the last 25 years now about fermentation, slow fermentation is, is a metaphor for a lot of things.
4: But what are we waiting for anyways? A feeling of perseverance The patience makes for better breads? Stephen Jones, head of the bread lab at Washington State University, calls out sourdough for what it really is—a colony of yeast and bacteria.
8: So, in a in a long ferment, you have things happening to the to the dough, and by long ferment, I mean more than than a few hours, right? And for us, we use natural ferment, so we use a, what would be called a sourdough or a levain which is a mix of yeast and bacteria, natural yeast and bacteria. They work with the dough, with the wetted dough, and that's all that's in most of the breads we make Have just uh, wheat, salt, water, and starter. That's all that's in there. So there are no other ingredients to, to add flavors or detract from flavors. During the fermentation process, starches are being converted to sugars, the micronutrients, the iron, zinc, selenium these are becoming freed up in the system. Um, the proteins are being broken down into amino acids. all this thing is all of these things are contributing to the life of the dough, and the dough is literally alive with microorganisms feeding on it, creating products that will add to the flavor beyond that, in terms of the the chemicals that are actually causing these flavors we don't go to that depth in the lab other people do what we do is we just generate them and we know they're there and we know they're they're beneficial and we we stop at that point basically so we don't have the capacity to go into the the chemistry of it others do and others can spend whole careers on that but for us what we know is is a bread as opposed to a cookie a bread dough is alive until we throw it into the oven A cookie dough basically is never alive, right? We're adding things to that to pull flavors out of it.
1: Francisco Magoya, head chef for Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, believes it's twofold, that flavor can also exist alongside function. The way we add our ferment can be an inherent part of a bread's outcome, not just structural. A cookie may be lifeless, but bread is part of an ever-expanding ecosystem even
9: post-mortem. If you think of sourdough of Le Mans as not just a leavener, that's not all it is. What it is is two more things. A, a contributor, a great contributor of depth of flavor and character to the bread. But it also is contributing a part of the dough that is already hydrated. This prehydration is going to reduce mixing time okay? Um, the the better a flour is hydrated, the more efficiently it's going to be hydrated, the less time it's going to take to mix it and to develop gluten in it. So you're reducing mixing time and you're adding flavor. So if you just think of it in those terms, what you can do is you can take this the sourdough, this inactive sourdough, we don't like to call it dead sourdough because I think inactive sounds a little bit better, dormant, um, and if you treat it as um, not a leavener, what you can do is take this levon, instead of throwing it away, you freeze it. And what I would recommend is freezing it in the weight that you would utilize in a dough, so it's already weighed out, it's ready to go. You freeze it, you can keep it in your freezer for three months if you wanted to, but when you need it, you thaw it in a you know, room temperature water, maybe a little bit warmer. And once it's thawed, it probably will take an hour. You mix it into your dough like you were mixing any sourdough. But what you're going to do is you're going to add commercial yeast. Typically, what we recommend, the percentage that we recommend adding of commercial yeast is 0.5 to 0.7%. And this is based on baker's percentage, so based on the flour being 100%. So compared to the flour, I would add 0.5 to 0.7% yeast. And so you're not depending on the Levant doing any leavening. Its only job now is to create this beautiful,
4: delicious, flavorful bread. Lionel Vatinet's passion for bread was first explored when he joined France's prestigious artisans guild, Les Compagnons du Devoir, at age 16. After apprenticing with European bakers and forming lifelong friendships with other compagnons, such as Eric Kaiser. Fatiné emerged seven years later with the hard earned title of Maître Boulanger, Master Baker. For decades since, he's carried these traditions to Cary, North Carolina, but notes it's the baker, not bakery, that gives bread its meaning. Bread is part of the human condition.
10: La levure, c'est ce qui permet de.
1: Yeast facilitates fermentation of bread. And has the power. For me, each baker has a different preference when it comes to using it. So, if there is too much yeast, or lack of fermentation, we will taste it. The flavor of yeast. Commercial yeast. If that's what we're using. Now, if we were to go over the top, we would just use a natural yeast, a levain. We also create more citrus flavor. It changes the density. It affects the choice of the baker and the direction in which he works.
4: As previously mentioned, Fatinet considers Eric Kaiser a contemporary. Born in Lorraine d'Alsace in France, Kaiser is descended from four generations of bakers. In 1996, Kaiser opened his first bakery, an authentic artisanal boulangerie on la rue de Mange, in the heart of the Latin Quarter in Paris. Today, Maison Kaiser has more than hundred shops in more than 25 different countries. The first Maison Kaiser opened in the United States in 2012 on the Upper East Side and quickly became known for producing one of the best baguettes in New York City. But how did Kaiser's consistently high standard for bread become a global phenomenon?
10: We have a chef in US, we have uh, Jan, my chef, he worked with me since 15 years or, 15 or 14 years. And his job is to, to train the American baker or the American chef that we take to understand the philosophy, how they can work with the levin. Because it's a philosophy, you know, because for a long time, people work with industrialists and now we are going back to the old story of the bread. So it's very important that the people understand the recipe understand what is the philosophy of the levin, because it changes the face of the of the day, I can say, because uh, you need to... The dough is another reaction with the levin. So our job is to, at the beginning, to teach to the American people, they work in our shop, how they can produce, working, and take care of the baby levin. Every day, we need to take care of the levin. We put water, we put uh, flour, and sometimes, this is what you said before, honey, to, to refresh our levin but we need to keep a part of this levin. It's a good nice souvenir now but it was terrible at this moment. It was 20 years ago I, I travelling a lot with my, my soudo and soudo is liquid Levin. and one time I was tired to put beside me my leg so I put in the in the safe huh? on the top of the passenger and after 30 minutes I heard the people starting to say, uh, "Oh my God, it's milk coming in my head and in my clothes," and oh, I said, "My God, it's, I'm sure it's my lover starting to 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 go uh, from the box to the to the to the condi- air condition," and uh, after ten minutes, because I need to take my my energy to stand up and I say, I think it's my mistake. <laughs> and so people was very upset with me and the, 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 pilot for sure and the hostess was very upset with, with me. So I starting to stop to traveling with a soft Levin and now is when I travel, I take a strong Levin. <laughs>
1: Jeremy Shapiro is a cook whose blog Stir the Pots documents his nomadic mind and worldly approach to baking. It's refreshing to see someone thinking so outside the bread box that baking traditions can be as experimental as avant garde cuisine. But let's not get too far away from the fundamentals. Shapiro's still attuned to where proper baking must begin.
11: refreshing is basically um, a starter is like a baby you have to feed it 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 likes water it likes flour because there's sugar in there and that you know it's like a whole alcoholic fermentation sort of thing these things that you have to add in or remove a little bit of your starter throw out some of the crap use it for sourdough pancakes just refresh water and flour and boom it comes back alive it's it's pretty miraculous. I mean, I just refreshed yesterday and I looked this morning, I'm like, woohoo, it's going. You know, you can just see like like mountains of bubbles going and the smell is great. It smells sweet. It doesn't. And I, there was actually a guy in Brooklyn once that was selling bread here and he was at the market and I said, oh, let me check out his video. And he had a video and he goes, and the sourdough has to be sour. I was like, ew, why? You don't want sour. That sour, it's just. Satan's spawn, it's acid. You don't want acid in your sourdough. There is some acid, but it's a good acid, not a bad one.
4: But is this first fermentation just a bunch of hot air? Or is there something to a Levant's flavor profile and persona that essentially becomes a part of a baker's psyche? George D. Pasquale is the fermentation facilitator at the Essential Baking Company in Seattle, Washington. And he believes fermentation breathes life into bread. Literally.
12: <laughs> yeah. Um, air is mostly... Okay, so while there is a little bit of interaction between the dough and the, um, and the air, um, it's really, when you think about it, you have a pretty dense... Um, you know, dough are a pretty dense thing, and it's not really interacting with the atmosphere all that much. Um, but where it does interact is in the mixing. So the most important thing about, um, about it, the dose interaction with air is the nucleation of alveoles in, in the mix, and that will facilitate um, the uh, g- gas bubbles, fr- you know, that'll help the gas bubbles form while, you're, uh, while it's rising. By nucleation, I mean you know you're mixing. Part of the reason to mix in a machine is that you're you're creating little little tiny air bubbles in the dough. And That you can think of that as like blowing up a balloon. Like if you take a balloon and try to blow it up, it's really difficult at first, and then once it starts going, it's a lot easier. You know how that with that effect? Uh, that's kind of the same thing happens in in the dough. So if there's little air bubbles, then the the gas that's produced by the fermentation has somewhere to go and will, um, it will occupy those, uh, those bubbles with CO2. Um, and those will be easily inflated. But if you don't do that, the dough doesn't rise as well because it's not nucleated all the way through.
11: Bulk fermentation is the first, uh, fermentation. Uh, basically that's you're letting the gas and stuff fart up inside the dough and, and then there's, there's uh, uh, folding uh, the bread. It's like you're doing, like, en- envelope folds, and then you're, like, helping the gases and the air and everything develop the, the, the dough. So bulk proof can be, from here to there, many hours. It's, there's never, like, a perfect, like, you know, never look at your watch while you're baking because that doesn't work. Look at the dough. That's the indicator, is the dough... Feel it, touch it, smell it, taste it. It's, it's like that.
1: Can you sense something bubbling away here? Dough and hopefully horizons are expanding. Peter Reinhart recognizes the links between fermentation and the release of flavor. As simple as it seems, bread is a very complex carbohydrate.
7: But there's that moistness, there's the sweetness, there's the gelatinization of the starches that have this smooth, uh, uh, you know, like uh, like tapioca. There's little tapioca balls you get in bubble tea. Yeah. You know, it's like, little, it's like that. It has that quality. Um, and, and then behind it, after you've chewed it a little bit, then all of a sudden these flavors start to pop out. And the flavors stay behind. Uh, I call it the loyalty factor. You know, you eat it now and it's still with you 30 minutes from now. You're still enjoying the taste of that bread. Um, And that is a result of good fermentation because that means that the flour itself has been transformed. The dough has been transformed into um, uh, something that has released the, the threads of starches that were part of that network have been broken down to some extent by enzyme activity and yeast activity and bacterial activity to release the, the smaller chains of natural sugars. And, and uh, essentially all the components begin to release from this complex starch, and they become accessible to your palate. And then there's also the you know, then that, that olfactory quality that every time you breathe after eating a really nicely fermented piece of bread, you're kind of re-experiencing those subtle flavors, but you know in your, in your sinus cavities, so to speak. So it's kind of hitting you in a lot of different places, and you're going, but this was just bread. I mean, bread, it doesn't get any simpler than bread. And it's true, I mean, in its simplicity, bread is about as complex as it gets as well.
4: But you still have to take it lightly. After all, it's just bread. Or is it? Can it be greater than the sum of its parts? Especially when the most important part happens at inception. It's a recipe, after all, where the biggest step is the one we have least control over.
12: the thing i always teach in, when i teach classes is that with, uh, one of the major points of uh baking that a lot of times uh lay people uh, especially don't really understand is that really what you're doing is fermenting uh flour that's that's really the 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 thing that you're doing so it's not so much you know all of the other components mixing shaping uh, you know, scoring, loading in and out of the oven, whatever, all those things are, of course, really important. But the most important thing, aside from eating it, is uh, is, for, is that you're fermenting. Uh, so understanding fermentation is really the key skill to baking bread, rather than just the um, mechanical stuff that you're doing by shaping and uh, dividing and all of that stuff, you yeah. So that's kind of what I mean. That was, sort of, that was sort of what I mean. It comes kind of from my
13: son when he was really small, saying,
12: Dad, you're a fermentation freak.
13: <laughs> I don't have a business card which says sourdough scientist. It says food microbiology.
12: Actually,
1: Michael Genzel is a sourdough scientist. Yes, he's a professor of many molecular things. Yet one thing he can singularly profess is that yeast has a true calling to make bread better. To him, sourdough is more than a trend. It's a way of life. But how has fermentation become part of the bread-baking doctrine?
13: At the microbial level, in a yeast-leavened bread, you have only baker's yeast, uh, called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so you have only one organism, relatively high numbers, uh, and a short time for the organism to actually do something. Uh, If you use a sourdough, you have at least two other types of organisms present, uh, which is usually... uh, two or three different species of lactic acid bacteria, uh, and their metabolic activity is very different from the yeast. So they acidify, they convert amino acids, so they complement the metabolic activity of the yeast. And the second point is because a long fermentation gives more time. Uh, That means the activity of the enzymes in the flour is much more prominent than if you have just a short fermentation time. If you take a Straight-dough fermentation, the enzymes in the flour have two hours to work and to do something. Uh, If you do a sourdough fermentation, they have 12 to 24 hours to do something, which means their contribution to the bread is a lot more important than in a short fermentation.
1: Sourdough is no fleeting thing. And even though such breads have a longer fermentation time, its breath is not without limits.
13: The sourdough bread has become a lot more popular and widespread over the last couple of years than it has been in 2005.
1: I know it's a big, broad question, but why do you think that is? If you ferment
13: with lactic acid bacteria, which is what you do with sourdough, you get a better quality. The taste is better, the ingredient list is shorter, uh, but you don't necessarily increase the price. Uh, And that's something that has been appreciated both by the bakers, which can use an ingredient which looks much better on the label uh, and gets them a better quality and it's appreciated by the customers. Uh, So I'm teaching a couple of lectures on fermentations and baking here Uh, and in 2005 when I went to the supermarket to go looking for sourdough bread I had to look very careful because if the label says sourdough the ingredient list would have chemical additives and if the Ingredient labels had sourdough, which means fermentation. Usually I didn't find the sourdough label on, on the in front, and that has changed. Uh, so now, if it, bakers use sourdough and the use of acetic acid, lactic acid, to get an acidic flavor has gotten almost out of use.
1: We'll let you chew on that. And we'll be right back with more Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you Modernist Breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Anyone who bakes understands that mastering it requires a real balancing act. There are some specific rules that must always be followed and occasions where your imagination can go a little wild. And to get just the texture we love in our baked treats, whether it's that fluffy, moist, chewy, etc., you must truly understand each ingredient's role to play. Bob's Red Mill gives bakers the absolute best quality ingredients to ensure the recipes they make, whether it's bread, cookies, or cupcakes, are always a work of art. Bob's Red Mill celebrates bakers and their love of baking with one of the largest lines of whole grain ingredients available. To learn more and get some delicious recipe ideas and great coupon offers, check out bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain food for every meal
14: of the day.
4: Free-roaming bacteria and yeast can come together to cultivate function and flavor making for an unmistakable tang and chew. Would you call that sourdough by nature? Well, Francisco would attribute those qualities to something more, anthropomorphically challenging us to see the personal allegory of each sourdough Levan, and in so doing, celebrating their individual character.
9: We have a number of Levan's, that our theory is, and our practice is that a Levon being a living thing, the more you treat it like that, the more it's like a pet, uh, and you understand that it's a trainable thing. Uh, Levon is going to get used to the times when you feed it. It's going to know that, you know, any time now. Let's say twelve hours have gone by. If I train my Levon to f- eat every twelve hours, it's going to it's going to adapt to that. If I train it to be fed every 24 hours, it's going to adapt to that, and so on and so forth. So, if I give it the right amount of water, if I give it the right amount of flour, if I keep it at the right temperature that it's used to staying at, it's not that much different from keeping a pet. Um, and so, we give our Levan's names. And the first Levon that we uh, started here when I started uh, January 13th in 2014 was. Um, it was it was mine. It was it's Levon James, so that's my my Levan is Levon James. Um, and then since then, everybody has kind of had their own. There's a Anginas is called Sir Gigistalot, and that's an homage of Sir Mixalot, which is uh, uh, he's a you may have heard of him. <laughs> um he but he's from the area he's from Seattle, so he has uh he's he's pretty well known here and uh he we haven't made any bread in homage of his uh um the song that he's most well known for and but
3: we're he likes big
9: buns. well we could totally just make like big buns and with it um and so that's it's not out of the question but Similar Abutted breads, yes. Um, and who else do we have? So we have a, a rye levon. Uh, so it's a levan that we utilize for leavening rye breads. And it's uh, that's Ryan Sea Crust. But know that Ryan is spelled R Y E N. R Y E A N. And let's see, we have Clint Yeastwood, which Clint Eastwood doesn't make a lot of appearances. We keep Clint Eastwood frozen. It's like a backup Levan. Bon. Just like your favorite pop icon, there's a point in
1: which these sourdough starters become oversaturated and obsolete. Nathan and Francisco give insight on how to nurture even the most ambitious sourdoughs.
3: We start at Uh, usually whenever we go on vacation. Uh, There's this phenomenon of sourdough hotels where you can have people feed your sourdough for you. Um, uh, I think there's one in Brooklyn. There's uh, one in uh, Stockholm. Uh, Well, the thing is, if you're really going away, we just stop and redo it. It, It's not that hard to get it back. Um, And what you've selected for is the conditions. Uh, now that means that if you are haphazard and you feed irregularly and you don't have good temperature control, so you're it's sometimes hot and sometimes cold, you are not having the same culture all year round. Sorry, it's different. And it may be so different that you notice it or you may not notice it, but it re- you there's giant changes that occur unless everything is kept dead even. Now, in Europe, uh, they kind of laugh at the idea of, um, of propagating a culture for a long period of time. The standard practice in Europe is you buy your cultures, um, uh, much like you'd buy commercial yeast. You add that to a batch. You'll propagate it a couple of times. Then you start over because you know that after a period of time, it's going to drift and, They'd rather be more precise and, and start over. Um, uh, one element of this is uh, interesting. Uh, if you make a sweet bread, you need to use a special yeast. And pastry chefs have figured this out. It's called an osmotolerant yeast. Um, it's related to the fact that you don't usually refrigerate honey or syrup. Why? This used to bug me as a kid. How come? Other things go bad right away, and, like, honey doesn't go bad. What's up with that? Well, the reason is that honey is too sweet to get infected. Now, that sounds funny, but if you take some strawberries and toss sugar over them, or toss salt for that matter, either way, uh, sugars taste better, you'll see that almost immediately the strawberries start weeping, and you get this liquid, and you get almost this... uh, juice that comes out of the strawberry. Why? Well, from osmosis. The concentration of sugar drives, sucks liquid out of the strawberries. Uh, and that's why uh, you have to drain it if you don't want to have mushy berries in your fruit salad or, or, or some such. Well, that same thing happens to bacteria. So if a bacteria lands in honey or um, uh, simple syrup... There's so much sugar there, it dries the bacteria out. It dries it to death. Um, Well, the same thing happens if you put too much sugar with yeast. Yeast eats sugar, but too much sugar kills the yeast. So uh, sweet bakers have learned that if you have a very sweet bread, you need to buy a special kind of yeast. And if you look at the store, they actually have it. Um, Well, meanwhile, people have had a really hard time making sourdough for sweetbreads. There was a recipe that we were um, uh, trying to make that was a um, panettone recipe from Italy. And, oh my God, it was complicated. And it involved um, days and days of fermentation to get the thing to to come up. Well, the problem there is that the sourdough culture... Was not used to the sugar and the osmo tolerance was killing almost everything in the in the thing the osmotic pressure was just decimating it so that well maybe we could evolve a sourdough culture that would like being sweet and of course you can so what we started doing was saying well every time if we want to make a sourdough culture that is for sweet things Every time we feed it with flour, let's also feed it with some sugar. So over time, the only strains that will be left are those that like the sugar. They will have evolved tolerance to the sugar. And it takes a week, 10 days to do this, and it works great.
9: Uh, sugar creates an osmotic pressure on things. If I think of something that has really high osmotic pressure is, for example, honey. So honey isn't just sugar. Honey contains a lot of water, not a lot, but it contains water. Uh, but there's such high osmotic pressure in honey that it doesn't give up any water. So therefore, if you know bacteria and mold, they require water to grow and thrive. It doesn't give it up at all. That's how high the osmotic pressure is. It's bound it so well that it's not sharing the water with anything. And that's why you're going to see honey. Honey is going, to last, is going to outlast humanity. I mean, it could potentially because nothing will grow on it. Um, and so if I think of a dough that has a lot of sugar, what that sugar is going to be doing is it's going to be stealing water from the yeast and it's going to be creating an environment that is hostile to the yeast, unless the yeast learns to adapt to that. And when levons become too saccharine, they might need a boost by way of commercial yeast in order to retrain them for their original purpose. You can buy commercial instant dry yeast that is called... It's for um, uh, for enriched doughs. And, you know, brands like, for example, Le Safra, they do a gold label yeast, which is for sweet doughs. And it's basically a yeast that they had trained to be comfortable in those environments. And so um, that's where we came with came up with the idea. If it can be done with commercial yeast, why can't you create a Le that is also comfortable in high osmotic pressure environments? And so we uh developed a, we basically trained Levon James. To, we took some of Levon James and we started feeding it every 12 hours, 10% sugar. Besides everything else, besides the water and the flour, we started feeding it. Temp- and, you know, within like at least three days, we started to see like very good activity within the Levon. So it, it became another Levon. It became a different Levon. Uh, It became an osmotolerant tolerant levon, which means that we used it with our panettones, we could use it with brioche, we could use it with sandwich bread. Um, And you can always adjust the sugar to whatever dough it is that you're using, right? If I'm using our panettone 16% sugar, we could bump it up to 16. Um, But once you get it there, it it can more easily adapt to more or less sugar. As long as it knows that it's in there, it's still going to to go through its uh, process.
15: But not all starters are the same whether they're starch-starved or sugar-forward, how do you arise your own? Jason Bond is chef-owner of Bondier in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's able to bake his own bread for service, a rarity in many restaurants because of time, space, and labor, yet a true pleasure when presented with a warm dinner roll.
16: Yeah, I think when I was probably you know back in the 90s <laughs> when it was you know it was hard to find good information about how to do this I mean you know bakeries of course had sourdough starters but you know unless you were you know unless you can get somebody to talk to you about how it works you know you, you couldn't just go find a book and you know at least it was difficult and you know there wasn't really a lot of internet in as much as we have today so um you know, but a lot of stuff you would read would talk about, you know, using fruit starters and things like that. The starter we have now it's it's flour and water, and you know sometimes we'll do different we'll do different flowers, and um, but you know we, we kind of we give them a set feeding schedule. Just it's kind of like a pet, and he uh, gets fed at the same time every day, and. Um, You know, and you can definitely see just sort of a, you know, you can, he's used to that schedule and I don't know if it's a he or she, whatever it is. Once he's used to his schedule and, you know, he knows when it's time to go to work and he does his job every day. You know, occasionally, like, it's actually kind of funny and I don't know if it's in my head or not, but when the weather changes or if we change geographically, like if I take him to some other town for something whatever then uh he gets a little a little fussy for a couple of days you know so i don't know if it's just the, the change in, you know you know like right now the weather just got colder here in boston and so but, you know the last few days he's been a little fussy and you know, he's a little cranky but he's he's fine again we worked it out uh his, his name's schmutzy yeah i've had schmutzy for about 12 years i think He's been to Harvard and MIT and a lot of different restaurants. Yeah, schmutzy Sh- has got some, some cred.
15: You have to nurture a starter like Schmutzy, because once you give it a name, it's alive, a living, breathing thing. Go ahead. Name your Levon. Really, go ahead. We want to hear you say it aloud. If you're scared of killing it, I get it. That's why you're stalling. But don't worry. Even though a Levant requires the right environment to grow up, it doesn't need to be fed all the time.
9: If you don't utilize your Levant frequently and you're feeding it every day, just like a little mason jar of levan, which is how most homemade bakers keep their levan, we did the math. In one year you would be utilizing 100 pounds of flour if you fed it every day, that little jar. So, might as well use it, or you can also freeze it.
15: Or you can think ahead, rather than react retroactively. Francisco brings up the studied practice of pre-ferments, and when one should consider compartmentalizing a bake, adding an initial step, to maybe save another in the future.
9: Hot fermenté is a type of pre-ferment. Uh, it means that it means fermented dough, and it was a Raymond Calvel was basically the the person who um, proposed it as the one of the solutions to you know bringing bread back from this this like heavy industrialized process into a more artisan process uh, because one of the 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 challenge was that making pre-ferments takes time and it takes all this time to, to ripen and it, it has to sit somewhere before you can mix it into a dough. And so he, his uh, proposal was to take, let's say you make baguette dough or any dough really, but then you harvest some of it. You harvest, let's say, 15% of it and you just keep it in your fridge. And the purpose of this is that that dough is going to ferment overnight, even in refrigeration, but then you can take that dough and use it as a pre-ferment for the dough that you're going to mix the next day. So in a sense, you, you, you never have to do a separate task of feeding or building any sort of pre-ferment. It's, it's the dough itself. It's just it's, it's a way of self-perpetuation. Uh, some folks say that, you know, at some point you have to start a fresh one, start a new one, because, you know, you might have there's a chance that you have like really old dough in there it could be possible. Um, I mean, for the most part, it's you could do an intentional pot fermente, which we have a recipe for in, uh, in our book. But for the most part, you can just harvest a little bit of dough, you keep it refrigerated. We recommend tempering it for a couple hours before you add it into your dough because you don't want to add a cold pre-ferment to your dough.
4: But don't just take Francisco's word for it. Peter Edris was formerly head baker of Thomas Keller's Per Se and Bouchon in NYC, before opening up his own bakery, Runner in Stone, in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn. There, he uses whole grains grown organically and milled locally by individuals whom he knows on a first-name basis. In respect to his relationships, he cares deeply about the purity of the products he works with. That said, a pre-ferment doesn't take away from the ingrained ethics of natural bread baking.
14: No, definitely not. The only intimidating part is that most of the whole grains I think, or whole grain recipes in order to be good require some amount of pre-fermentation and so some people are um, intimidated by pre-ferments and especially natural pre-ferments like sourdoughs, that becomes a process that I personally wouldn't <laughs> deal with at home either if yeah. I wasn't in the baking industry. So Yeah,
1: but let's debunk the idea of pre-ferments being hard. Yeah. I mean, what are they and how do you easily accomplish a
14: good one? Uh, I mean, there's commercial yeast preferments and then natural yeast preferments. So commercial yeast preferment, which would be like a puliche or a biga, is super easy. It's just, you know, two minutes of activity and then you wait 12 hours and then you make a bread. Um, so that, those, I think, are <clears throat> certainly doable and add a lot of flavor and structure to an end result for a home baker the sourdough starter becomes a little more involved. So, yeah, it's one minute of activity, but it's maybe every 12 hours or once a day once it's established. So that becomes a little more onerous, and I can understand needing a certain level of dedication as a home baker to conquer that. But, again, still not. I think the only way to learn how to make bread is to just make crappy bread a bunch of times and and think about it and taste it and talk about it and ask your local baker what he or she thinks. And um, and then it, it's just a process. It's, it's gaining experience and learning what can go wrong.
15: Seemingly, the biggest factor in quantifying a quality bread is time. First, let's hear Peter Reinhardt's story on how a Parisian boulangerie's choice to ferment overnight produced a très bon baguette. And made him a more enzymatically aware bread baker.
7: I had a real um, wake-up experience in Paris when I tasted the breads of Philippe Gosselin at his Boulangerie. And I wrote about uh, I wrote about that in Bread Baker's Apprentice. Uh, and and that was where I started again. Talk about connecting dots. That's where I began to like ask the questions. I it, say it starts a lot of times by asking the right questions. And so the question was, why is his baguette, which is using the same four ingredients as everybody else's, why is it so much better? Why is it creamier and sweeter? And 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 the crust has so much more toffee-like qualities to it. Uh, what's going on there? And his technique was very different from theirs, and it used overnight fermentation, really slow. A gentle fermentation, and a wet, sticky doughs that were not easy for bakers to use with the current equipment. It's almost like ciabatta dough. And and so still, you, st- you see, okay, here's this technique, that works, but still the question is, but why? What is it that's making it work? And that was st- trying to answer the question of why did that bread work? Why did this long overnight fermentation create a better qu- color in the bread, a better flavor in the bread, more sweetness that... I started to kind of work it backwards. I started to work the problem back, and there's and that's when I started thinking about enzymes because it's not just the fermentation of the yeast cuz all breads are fermented by yeast, but one of the things that these longer fermented doughs added to the to the to the mix is that it gave the enzymes that were inherent in the flour and the wheat itself time more time to do what they do which is to break apart the starch molecules to release those little threads of of glucose and maltose and fructose and they were all tied up in these starch molecules and so then so all of a sudden i had the enzyme piece I think I I think the line I wrote was something like I've seen the future it's called enzymes I feel like you know, it's not plastics it's enzymes you know and um and and and, and ever since then I've seen you know, again more and more you see enzymes being much more part of the conversation so I say I think that's part of the sort of this, the learning thread that we've been talking about
13: In terms of the fermentation uh, the simple answer is a long fermentation will give a better bread quality than a short fermentation Uh, So your default is you you add the flour, you add the yeast and the water, and you ferment in a yeast-leavened bread probably two hours, uh, which is a little bit too short for either the yeast or the flour enzymes to produce a lot of flavor. Uh, If you take a small part of the flour and ferment it for 24 hours, uh, there is a lot more time for the enzymes to be active, for the yeast to be active, and for lactic acid bacteria to grow so the quality will be better.
4: All bakers should aspire to at least attempt long-fermented doughs. Pizza not excluded. Tony Gemignani is the first and only triple crime winner for baking at the International Pizza Championships in Lecce, Italy. His most prestigious title to date was the 2007 World Champion Pizza Baker at the World Pizza Cup in Naples, Italy, where he was the first American and non-Neapolitan victor. In 2009, Gemignani fulfilled his lifelong dream by opening Tony's Pizza Neapolitana in San Francisco's North Beach neighborhood. He now owns 16 pizzerias across the country.
17: Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, I think, you know, something that's important is understanding to maximize your dough, understanding the protein level in your dough. And the higher the protein, the longer you can let your dough mature. One of the common mistakes in the pizza world in the U.S. is using same-day dough. Um, not a big fan of it. You know, slow rise method is is important to me. I like a refrigerated method as well. But um, I always do a minimum of 24 hours, if not 36, for me. And most doughs are optimal. Um, and also understanding that uh, your hands are everything. Um, a lot of people think that some doughs are super hydrated and they're not uh, you know a lot of red guys out there are used to running super hydrated doughs. but when you start getting people your everyday common you know consumer or just pizza maker home enthusiast you know and they're trying to make pizzas and they'll say wow this this dough's a little wet it's tacky it's, it's it's all about your hands and how quick you move and also how you open it up.
1: So you see, whether a noble attempt or an amateur endeavor, bread baking always starts with something no bigger than 5 to 10 micrometers in diameter. We thank you, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, for your service, and we hope to grow slowly together.
15: This has been Episode 3 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, On the Rise, on yeast, leavening, and fermentation. In the next episode, Milling About, we'll be re-examining history through the sphere of industrialization and how bread production progressed throughout the world. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at carolclevelandsings. I hope this episode got a rise out of you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.